Father God, we come this morning and just we enumerate our needs before you. They are more detailed and more complex than we have words to fully describe, but we'll try. Heavenly Father, we come this morning recognizing that we don't know the future, but you do, so we trust your omniscience. Heavenly Father, we, um, we don't know when our current wilderness, whether it be a family wilderness, an individual wilderness, or even our collective wilderness as a culture, as we walk through this thing called the pandemic, Lord God, we don't know where, we don't know how it all wraps up, Heavenly Father, but our confidence is not there, our confidence is in you. And so, Lord God, because we, our lives are filled with all these unknowns, Lord God, would you just enrich the degree to which we know you so that our knowledge of you fills in the blanks of what we do not know about our future? Heavenly Father, would you give us a fresh acquaintance with your faithfulness and your power? Lord God, would you allow us as we walk through just a few brief Lord God, moments in your word that you would fill our hearts with an eternal appreciation for your work. We pray, oh, holy God and Father, that we stand 2,000 years removed from the, from, the, from the epicenter of the gospel, but would you make it as plain to us, Lord God, today as if we were standing there at the foot of the cross and at the opening of the tomb. Lord God, we stand multiple millennia, Heavenly Father, from the actual events found in the book of Numbers, but Lord God, would you tattoo to our hearts the teachings that you desire for us to hold on to and savor concerning your person and your character because you're the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. Heavenly Father, will you help me? There's no possible way that I can fully anticipate the needs of every heart and every household in the room. I don't even fully know my own needs to articulate them. That's why you gave the Holy Spirit, oh God, and you said that he would intercede for us because I don't know how to pray for as I ought to. Heavenly Father, so I pray for, the, for us that we would encounter you in an incredible way today that would leave us undeniably saying that we have seen a demonstration of your spirit, that we have, that we have grown in the knowledge of your son, and that we have seen something of you, O oh God, the one true and living God over our lives. Lord God, would you help us today? And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Gospel Hope. It is good to see your faces. Um, some of you may yell amen, but this is the final installment on our series from the book of Numbers entitled In the Wilderness. This is the final one. Uh, and then, amen, did I say it? Okay. <laughs> amen. That's a trick question. Uh, actually, it was a, a trick announcement to see yeah, how you felt about the series. <laughs> Um, but we will begin uh, next week a new series as we kind of ease into the Christmas season uh, entitled, uh, Who Is This? Who Is This? Uh, and so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a recurrent question in the scriptures as people encounter Jesus in different ways. And the way that he moves in those moments, it really begins to exp uh, expose us to these certain deep realities about Jesus uh, and the Christmas season. And so we'll be covering that for you uh, starting next week. But uh, in the meantime, we've got one more message to pile on here in our series from the book of Numbers. And um, you've heard a couple of people on the stage say something about uh, we, uh, wilderness wisdom, and that's what we're going to be talking about. Um, but first, let me ask you a question about wisdom. How many of you uh, have ever had an experience, an experience that you would never in a million years want to repeat, but at the same time, you would not want to replace that experience because it taught you so much. Show of hands, you've encountered that? I mean, let's talk about some simple things. Let's not get super deep and spiritual. Has anybody ever driven through a whiteout? 
That's like a snowstorm, you, you know, a snowstorm that is so aggressive that you, you, you bring the vehicle down, to, you're crawling at a snail's pace, and you can't even see in front of you, and your windshield wipers can't move fast enough to remove all of the, the snowflakes, right? This is not the Hallmark Channel. This is the Hallmark Channel from hell, right? <laughs> like, like, real snow is not pretty. It gets, like, gray and get heavy with salt, and then it's like, you know, it causes, like, people's problems, you know what I mean? Uh, but, but if you've ever been in that kind of encounter, you would never want to go back to, to driving in a whiteout. But once you get done, there's a certain wisdom that you've gained about how to wheel the vehicle and how to drive that you grow to appreciate that will serve you well for the rest of your driving experience. How many people during the course of COVID had to learn how to cook? I'm talking about during the quarantine. <laughs> right? You had to learn how to turn a pot on the stove and do something other than make turkey sandwiches, Right? You had to learn how to go in the cupboard and open boxes that you didn't even know what, was the, what the contents were, but I got to read these instructions and figure out how to make one of these, whatever that picture is on the front. How many people had that experience? You had to learn how to cook during the quarantines of COVID. How many people had to learn, or you did learn, almost by force, how to save a little money? You looked in your account, and you was like, where did this come from? Yeah. It's because you went on a fast food fast. Right? You weren't going out and buying all of these, you know, cheap meals. You had to eat at home. But, but, but you were learning. But guess what? None of us would ever say, yeah, Jesus, rewind the tape. Let's go back to the top. Run that back. Let's go to the top of the pandemic. No. But we also enjoy and savor the wisdom that came out of that very tough season. It may not have been COVID. It may not have been driving in the whiteout. But I'm pretty sure that each one of us can identify with a season in life where the Lord showed us something about ourselves, showed us something about him. We learned something from his word. We learned something about life that we would never want to dispense with, even though we would never want to go back to the place where God taught it. And that's just wisdom that we bring from our wildernesses. Well, today, when we open the text, we're going to take a look at the second generation of the Israelites. Remember, I've told you at the top of the series and throughout, tried to remind you that we're watching this time-lapse photo of God sanctifying for himself a people. That first generation of Israel that came out of Egypt will not be the same generation that goes into the promised land. And we are now picking up where this new generation is in full view, and they are on the cusp, on the edge of walking into what God had promised multiple, many years prior to them in Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is the undercurrent here that you need to pay attention to because God promised that he would have a, a people that he would raise up, and those people would be numerous. They would have great progeny. They all start with peas if you were a note taker, and that they would have their own distinct property. Come on, baby. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> High five, help meet, boom. We need to get you a mic. But they would have their own distinct property. They would have their own distinct property. And so here we are, these people getting ready to walk into uh, one of the more complete views of God's promise for them by going into the promised land. That's what undergirds this is what, what's happening here. Well, throughout the last 40 years that these people have found, been following God, they've seen some very harrowing things. The generation that we're just getting ready to, to look to, these are folk who were 20 years of age and below when they saw their parents, their grandparents, and their great-grandparents actually be judged by God for having not followed through on the obedience that he called them to when they were at the cusp of walking into the promise some 40 years ago. So they, they, they were there. Some of them were little ones, maybe, uh, maybe in their mother's arms when they saw uh, the seas roll back in Egypt. Some of them were, were toddlers who had to run, too, and they ran on dry ground. It's like, Mama, how come my feet not getting wet? 
Some of them were, were, were kids who, who, who maybe sat around the table saying, why we have to keep eating matter? And they were like, shh, you know what happened to your uncle uh, Rahim them when they complained about this meal? You better eat that. Right? So, so this is a generation who's had some visibility into God's promise, into, into, into God's way of working with his people. And unfortunately, many before them have gone, they have died. And they know firsthand why those folks died, because God made a promise that they would. Well, as they walk into the land of promise, there is something that they need to bring with them from the wilderness. And this is pretty much the emphasis of today's message, and that is we need to walk in the wisdom gained from the wilderness. We need to walk in the wilderness gained, from, excuse me, walk in the wisdom gained from the wilderness. Do not waste your respective wildernesses. We're going through one collectively together as a church. We've had to learn how to turn on the technology and improve our social media footprint. We've had to learn all kinds of new things in order to create community and continuity here as a church. There are things that we would have probably never learned under any other context, so we thank God for it, but man, we don't want to go back. And, I, and, and so, so, so in our commitment to not want to go back through tough seasons in life, I, I want to ask you to mentally and emotionally not to waste your wilderness. Not to rush through difficult seasons in life so quickly to try to get it out of your mind and get it behind you that you actually leave some of the sacred cargo that God wants to import into your character Amen. during that season. So I just want to ask you to bring the wisdom gained from the wilderness. I'm going to point to a couple of points in Israel's story where I believe there are just some, some, crystalli some, some crystallized moments of wisdom that I would hope that they would bring with them as they move forward. And I believe that we could learn from them in the way that they bring this wisdom forward. In Numbers chapter 33, verses 50 through 56, I want to read it to you nice and slow because there is some, some literary landscape that I want you to pick up on and not miss the details. It says here in these verses, And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan. I want to just do a hard pause right here. So Moses isn't going to make the trip. He is a part of that generation that disobeyed God. Moses will not be making the trip, ladies and gentlemen. He will see the promised land from the mountaintops of Mount Pisgah, but he will not be walking into the land of promise. Why? Because even he disobeyed God in previous chapters by striking the rock that God told him to speak to. So in other words, no one is exempt from God dealing with them when it comes to participation or non-participation in his promises. I believe it's important to note that it is actually Moses who is delivering this message of what they ought to do in the succeeding verses. I'll continue to read. And then you shall, in verse 52, and then you shall drive out all the inhabitants from the land before you, destroy all their figured stones, destroy all their metal images, destroy all their high places, and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. And I have given the land to you to possess it, and you shall inherit the land uh, by lot according to your clans. Uh, to a large tribe there shall be given a large inheritance, and to a small tribe there shall be a small inheritance. And whatever lot falls to anyone, that shall be his according to the tribes of your fathers. This is a biggie right here. Don't miss this. Verse 55. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, then those of them who you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. 
and I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Now, this nation has been here before. This is like a rerun for them, except they were babies. They were all 19 years, 11 months, and younger. The last time Israel was in this uh, particular position, right? That, that, but God says, folks older than that can't go in. But why? Uh, when you look at the fact that in these first two verses, right, and the Lord spoke to Moses, his words have a very particular gravity because as they hear him tell them how they need to move, they're looking at a man who is their hero. He is the heralded uh, 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 deliverer that God used, and even he will not get in. Can you imagine what must be going through their hearts? As, a, as the person who is telling them how to walk into the new land, he won't be able to go with them. Why is this important? I'm certain that Moses, as well as was done in previous chapters or later chapters, he began to recount for them all the great things that God had done. You see, I believe that this first two verses wants us to, to, to walk away with this particular piece of wisdom, that the Lord's promises are never limited by human performance. The Lord's promises are never limited by human performance or human underperformance. I mean, look, look at this. I mean, external forces like Egypt, the Amalekites, the Moabites, and even the Canaanites, every people group that they came up against, none of them could thwart the execution of what God promised to do in them. We need to learn from this that there is no external force that can stand in the way of what God wants to do in our lives. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, and I am sure of this, that we who began, that he, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. There's a great promise that God has given to the New Testament believer, and that is that he has guaranteed that we'll be conformed or we'll be transformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ, and nothing will get in the way of of that work. This is a great promise that we need to hold on to. And human underperformance or human performance will not thwart that promise. Whether it is an external force in your life, you believe perhaps you've come from the wrong family or you're, you're couched in the wrong time and the temptations of your day are too heavy. God says, no, no human performance can stop the performance of my promise. Whether or not you have internal issues like the first generation or like Moses or like Aaron or like Miriam, all those who will not make it in. Whether there's internal issues in your life, things that you believe that are sins and temptations that grip you so deeply, you don't know how God could ever use you. God says, no, you need to understand that no human performance could ever limit his promise. He is committed to completing the work that he began in you and I. That there is no obstacle, no natural obstacle, be it sea, land, or even time. One of the great things that happens in many of our lives is we look back and we look over our lives and we sit there and say, man, look at me. Look how old I've gotten. God don't want to use me. I'm past my prime. There is no midlife crisis in Christ. Amen. There is no duration of time that can thwart God's promise. And so here it is. I, I believe that the Bible calls us to this reality that my confidence in God should never be limited by my lack of confidence in me. My confidence in God should never be limited by my lack of confidence in me. Now, you might be saying, well, Pastor Rod, that's kind of obvious. Well, it is obvious, but it's obviously an issue for us. Because Israel would stand at the, at, the, at the edge of the promised land and pull back because they thought the people were too large. They thought the, 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 the houses they lived in were too, were too steep. They thought that people were too many. In other words, they interpreted God's abilities through the lens of their own brokenness. I do too. I look at a task sometimes and I say, well, God, you called me to do that? And, and, and I may never turn my mouth toward heaven and say, no, nah, that can't be done. But when I'm slow to move, that's exactly what I'm saying. 
is that God, your promises, your power, your ability is a function of my confidence. And this is why the scriptures call us to constantly throw our confidence in him and have no what? Confidence in the flesh. Because it doesn't bring anything to the table. Our confidence in the flesh is just a costume that says, God, this is an area where I don't really need you. You can go on break. And so my confidence in God should never be limited by my confidence in me. The Bible would say something like this in uh, uh, Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and following. This is a saying that is trustworthy. For if I have died with him, that is Christ, we also will live with him. This is a promise. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So my faith in God, or the lack thereof, may truncate my participation in his promises, but it will not truncate his ability to follow through. Now, you might be saying, well, well Pastor, I, I don't know if that's very encouraging. Well, it ought to be because it means that God's performance is not contingent on your performance. Like his ability to be God and to be faithful has nothing to do with how weak and feeble and incomplete you may feel like you are. The world would have us to believe that we need to think of ourselves as more than enough. You've got this. You can get in there, buddy. That's what the world would tell you. And God is saying, no, you can't, but that's okay because I want to show you something about myself that you've never discovered before. And nor would you see if you thought you were more than enough for this moment. And so... The Lord's promises are not limited by human performance. As a matter of fact, one of the most beautiful images of the cross is this. You have an entire culture and, the world, and a world power in Rome. Both the, the, the government, the wheels of the Roman government, as well as the animosity of Jesus' own people, actively working against him to thwart his life, but then the Lord takes that same momentum like a great theological judo master and converts their treachery into the triumph of the cross. God promised that he would have a people for himself and he would send his son to the cross to die for his people and the people thought they were extinguishing the, the life of Jesus and they were actually exemplifying exactly what God wanted to do. He went to the cross to the determinate foreknowledge and counsel of God. And so the Lord's promises will not be limited by human performance, regardless of the personalities, regardless of the lands, regardless of the issues that face uh, the people that are trying to experience God's promise. This should be encouraging to you that it's not your confidence that is the contingency on whether or not God's going to do what he needs to do. Take a look with me now in verses 52 through 54. Then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you and destroy all their figured stones, uh, destroy all their metal images, demolish all their high places, and you shall take possession of the land and settle in it. For I have given the land to you uh, to possess it. This is an interesting thing, how the Lord uh, has this, this really comprehensive lift. Demolish, destroy, take, I need you to just remove all of this stuff. Why? Why does God do this? Well, before we discover the why, I want to explain for you a moment just a what. The Lord knows Israel's predilections toward idolatry. He knows it. He knows my predilections toward idolatry. He knows, he knows the human tendency to move from the abstract to the practical. 
The golden calf, if you remember him from the book of Exodus, is the product of a people not wanting to make God mad, but, but, but feeling a certain sense of insecurity about having a God that they could not see. Man, give us something to look at. Man, Pastor Rod, I want to believe all these principles from the Bible, but, but can, you, can you boil it down into something? Can you give us a bumper sticker? Can you give us a rubber bracelet? Can you give me a rabbit's foot? Can you give me a t-shirt with your favorite message points? We are creatures who crave having something in our hand that helps us worship the unseen God. Therefore, God is really aggressive about setting parameters to not produce anything, metal, earth, or, or earthenware, or anything that would facilitate idolatry. And the way that he calls us to do that is through a very basic space of obedience. Uh, I would say this about Israel. This second generation, they hear this command, and they've seen this movie before. And I believe that here, here's another piece of wisdom, that the Lord's prompt to obey should be met with, excuse me, the Lord's prompt to obey should not be met with diversion or delay. It's preachy, I know, but it helps you remember it. The Lord's prompt to obey should not be met with diversion or delay. Why? When you deliberate on what God calls you to do, it gives the flesh a chance to negotiate its fears. Who's, yeah, yeah, amen, I'll, I'll take that. And this is why in obedience, let me say this, biblical obedience, track me, follow me, fact check me. When you see a call to biblical obedience, you'll always see three things. You'll see obedience has a, uh, three ingredients, timing, a task, and a trajectory. The timing of obedience is important because of just what I said. We want to, when the moment that God speaks to our heart, says, man, why don't you share the gospel with this person? Why don't you pray with this person? Why don't you, uh, why don't you give this way? Or why don't you do that? Why don't you read this? Why don't you wake up early and read your Bible? Why don't you do that? How many people have ever noticed in the most mundane spaces in life, the moment that you delay obedience, the obvious prompt of the Holy Spirit to do something, something else noble, not naughty, something noble fills in the space that makes obeying, obeying God in that moment impractical or inopportune. So this is why we need to obey God when he calls us. And so Israel knows this all too well because they were standing there previously when God says, go in and take the land, and they delayed, and that delay got filled in with about 40 years of other stuff to do, 40 years of aerobics. And so timing is important. We need to remind ourselves that wherever, wherever there is a call that God will also equip God never called anybody to obey him and then left him out there without the requisite equipment to do so. But God, not obe obedience not only has a timing factor where we need to move without delay, but it also has a task. Notice how comprehensive the task is that God calls his people to. Go in and tear down these images, tear down these high places. I mean, don't keep anything. Why is his call so comprehensive? Because while delayed obedience is disobedience, partial obedience is also disobedience. This is a piece of wisdom that we can share with our ancestors in the faith. When a person moves in partial obedience, what we are saying is, hey, God, I've looked at what you asked me to do, and there's some variables that you did not consider. Oh, I know you're omniscient. However, I've discovered something that you didn't quite address, so I'm going to do it this way. You see how ridiculous this whole thing looks? I mean, I'm a candidate for lightning, right? You, you guys are probably saying that even to do it as a stunt in your message makes some of you like, like cringe, right? But this is exactly the posture of the heart when we obey God partially. We're saying, I've got a better idea. And so the task is important, not only the timing, but the task. But oh, this is my favorite part. 
The trajectory of obedience is important. The trajectory is, where is where, where, what is the trajectory? What is it doing? So here's why. The number one question, if this was spiritual faith family feud, the number one question that people often ask pastors during church, boo, 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 um, what is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? Spring number one. It's the number one answer. But here's how you discover God's will for your life. You ready for this? Um, incremental obedience. Following the breadcrumbs of obedience, even though it seems minute and nonsensical, when you have a lifestyle that strings together a series of obedience to God, it begins to paint a complete picture of God's will for your life. How many of you played the dot-to-dot game? The fun pad, I'll date myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everybody put their hand up. Got a little bit of gray hair right here. So we used to have these things called a fun pad. And they had these games in there called dot-to-dot that our parents would give us during church. Right? And so you, it would be like, you know, a Mickey Mouse or a duck or a Goofy or some Disney animal or a, ca- a sand castle, a little race car. But you would start and take your pencil and put it on number one. And then you would just go to number two. And then you would take the pencil and drag it to number three and then number four and number five. And you would do all of these little things. And as you're following the dots, as you're connecting the dots, a picture that was not apparent previously begins to emerge. That's exactly the role that obedience plays when it comes to getting appropriate picture of God's will. So you're asking God or asking your pastor, what's God's will for my life? And I'm going to tell you, connect the dots. Obey him with what you have before you and allow the trajectory of where each one of those moments, because obedience is not static, it is dynamic. When you obey God, it moves you from where you are toward him. It moves you from where you are to the next sequence of options. And when you obey God each time, it begins to paint a picture. And that picture is more clearly God's will. Now, if anybody else who played with the old fun pad can remember... If you recognize a partial picture of a Mickey Mouse or whatever it was, and you tried to get ahead without following the numbers, you always messed up the image. So even when you knew what it was, it was still incumbent upon you to get the details right. Because if it was Porky Pig and you raced to do a pig, you might miss the little circles in his nose. Hey, but that, come on. Thank you, Marcus. You ain't man come on the fun pad. Everybody go out. Google fun pad. Google fun pad. Everybody go Google fun pad when you get home. But nevertheless, I think you get the dot-to-dot analogy. I wish I had a more contemporary example. Y'all can bless me afterwards and let me know if people still do this. But, but nevertheless, here's why I share this. My motivation to obey God should be anchored in my devotion to him and not the degree of difficulty of the task that he has asked of me. I know that's a super mouthful and it's not even rhymy. But the bottom line is this. Um, My trepidation or my tendency not to fully obey God is often uh, not motivated by the fact that he knows what he's doing. It's it's this belief that I think I might know how to handle this better. But when when, when, when my faith is fully anchored in the fact that God knows what he's doing and he knows how to manage my life and that he has anticipated all the details, I can move even in mundane moments. That doesn't seem like it makes sense. I can move in these mundane moments. and, and, And the commandments no longer look like morality but they become these images that are pointing me back to a person. You understand, like for instance, when the, when the Bible says, you know, you know, thou shalt not steal, right? Okay, that's a moral moment, that's a precept. But behind the precept is a principle, and the principle is this. God will provide if you're lacking, and God sees you when you're out here stealing. 
But then there is a person behind the precept. You see this? A person that gives life to it. I want to be your provider. I want you to know that anything that you lack, especially anything that you lack so at a level that you think you've got to take it from somebody else, I want you to trust me that I'll meet your needs above and beyond anything that you could ever ask or think. You see how every precept, regardless of how mundane, is tied to a principle, and the principle is tied to a person. Even each one of the commandments. That's why Jesus could say with full confidence, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. Why? Because each one of the Ten Commandments point to something about the person of God. Jesus said, not even a jot or a tittle will pass away from the word until all is fulfilled. A a, a yod is the smallest character in the Hebrew alphabet. To us, it would be like, I mean, smaller than a comma. And Jesus says, not even something that small will vanish from the word before it is all fulfilled. And therefore, it is a call for us to take God's word even more seriously. But my motivation should be to please him as a person and not trying to have a negotiation about the practicality of what God is calling me to do. That's what the previous Israel did, and it cost them their lives. When I look at the Lord Jesus in his days leading up to the cross, we see this all the more. We see his disciples saying, no, 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 man. What you mean you're going to go die? That doesn't seem practical. That doesn't, those dots don't connect for me. That does not compute. But Jesus, and even Jesus goes before the Father and says, hey, man, if there's any other route or path to, to fulfill this, let's do it. But, oh, but you know what? Let me, let me stop that. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. In other words, Jesus typifies for us what it means to anchor one's confidence in the character of God that he's got this thing under control and not me having to negotiate all the details before I can move forward clearly. If you were project manager in the room, you probably, your face just be toe up because you'd be like, Lord, let me get this. I need this access worksheet or whatever. Amen. But all of us as humans, whether you're a program manager or not. I want to take a look at this final segment of verses. It says here in verses 55 through 56, but if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land before you, those of them who you let remain shall be barbs in your eyes, thorns in your sides. So aggressive, God. You're so aggressive. Um, And there should be trouble in the land where you dwell. And then even more aggressively, God, Lord, obviously you know what happened in my heart when I read this. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. I was like, ouch. And what I learned, the wisdom that I got from this was this. And Israel knew it firsthand, and here I am learning it secondhand from them. That the Lord proves to be just as aggressive in blessing his people as he is in addressing their sin. Let me, let me show you. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. You shall not bow down to them, talking about idols. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on your children and on, the, on, on, your children, on the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to the thousands who love me and keep my commandments. The Lord proves to be just as aggressive in blessing his people as he is in addressing their sin. Why? Well, one of the other commandments will help us. Remember in the Ten Commandments when God commissioned these people, he says, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Why is that? The Lord's name is his brand. Many of us probably thought that was exclusively like saying the name of the Lord wrong or, or coupling it with some cuss words. No. To, 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 to mismanage the Lord's name for us as contemporary believers, we should know ourselves, his people, we are his brand. Holiness is the Lord's brand, and we are his brand managers, if you will, right? We're the ones that the general public looks to to see what God is all about, right? We are the marketing team for the most high. No one has ever seen God and lived. 
So how do people get an idea of what God is like? By reading his word and looking at the lives of his people and comparing the two and looking for a composite. We are the Lord's brand managers. We are his social media. We are the ones who people look at to say, I think, according to the Christians, this is how God moves. This is what holiness looks like. This is what righteousness looks like. Now, that might sound weighty and heavy, but it's the reality. Look at what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 2 through 3 say. You yourselves are letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all, all. And you show that you, excuse me, you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. People are looking to read our hearts and read our ways to understand something about our God. We are his brand managers. We are his social media. And as I said to the previous service, I don't want to be the tweet that God feels the need to delete. I don't want him to have to walk back anything that I said. But my life is actually that. Jesus says, let your works glorify your fathers in heaven. But, but, but it says, show your good works so that people would see them and then glorify. So there's something that people would see in my life that would cause them to, to understand something about God. If you paid attention to the regular tensions between Moses and God, when God got ready to destroy Israel, Moses would intercede and say, man, but guess what the nation is going to say about you if you manage your people this way? We are God's brand managers. We are his social media. We are the press secretary for the sovereign king. If any of you follow uh, uh, politics at all, uh, whether you like the press secretary or not, the reporters in the room are regularly asking questions about the direction of the administration, are they not? How the president thinks about uh, uh, things. When people don't like her answers, they don't blame her, they blame the president. Now think about it, if we're the press secretary for the sovereign king, think about this, when, when the press secretary is speaking, the quality of her answers are contingent on how much time she spent with the actual president understanding his ideas. And so when people want to interview us, if you will, to understand who is this God that we say we follow, they, the only assumption that they can make is that must be what God said. These are the people that hang out with him. And so the quality of our answers are contingent on how much time we spend with the Lord in his word and in his presence. We are the press secretaries for the sovereign king. Simply put, my life is an illustration of the Lord's reputation, and he will either publicly confirm or correct my narrative. Because he's equally aggressive in blessing me as well as addressing my sin. Now, this is not some nuanced idea. Take a look, if you will, at the, at the nature of the cross. What is that? What is happening at the cross? At the cross, we see God applying equal intensity in, 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 in this, this, this intensity to both to bless and address sin. When you look at the, the cross of Jesus Christ, notice that Jesus is absolutely the most innocent person that humanity has ever seen. But at the same time, he simultaneously becomes the most indicted person that anyone has ever seen. Because on the most innocent man rests all the world's sin. He is equally as aggressive in blessing his people as he is in addressing their sin. Because all who would place faith in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross experience an incredibly aggressive, blessed relationship with the Lord that you could never calculate, inventory, or ask for yourselves. And so even the cross demonstrates God's commitment to be equally interested in blessing his people as well as addressing their sin. One of the final pieces of wisdom that I believe that we can extract from watching Israel walk for 40 years in the wilderness is this. When we saw Jesus in Matthew chapter 3, he entered in and he walked for 40 days in the wilderness. 
Unlike Israel, Jesus did not fail. He was tempted in all points as we are. He was tempted in all points as they are. There was an initial temptation about the provision that God had for him. Hey, Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, why don't you make some bread? Hey, Jesus, if, if this is what you're really about, why don't, you, why don't you bow down to me and go ahead and short, get the shortcut to the kingdoms that, that, that you are owed? Uh, if, you, if you really believe God's word, why don't you throw yourself off of this high temple and the angels will come in and swoop you up? And so Jesus taught us in that moment some wilderness wisdom. Number one is this, to take God at his word. To take God at his word. To take God at his word as seriously as we would, as we would have our even need for food. That's exactly what manna did, was supposed to supply for Israel. It wasn't that he had his people on a diet. He was trying to demonstrate that they could trust him day to day for their actual food. And then Jesus typifies this by saying, I'm going to trust God at his word, and that's what I'm going to eat. Jesus went even further as he endured these temptations. He never tested the Father, but Israel failed. They tested the Father over and over again. They tested his faithfulness and found themselves to be judged in many ways. But Jesus said, I'll never test the Father's faithfulness. I will not try to leverage his promises against him. I want to see his promises unfolded in my own life. Jesus would never trade his worship for the worship of another. But Israel regularly, the past Israel and even the present Israel, unfortunately, would trade their worship for something else just to actualize what they felt like they were owed. You brought us out here to kill us. Where's the land that we reserve? The only reason that Israel, later in the book of Judges, will ever bow down to idols is because they believed that he could supply them with something immediately that they felt God had underdelivered on, ultimately. Every idol that comes into my life is typically a shortcut to trying to see something that I know God can give, but he ain't, just, he ain't moving fast enough. And so I believe that in all of this, wisdom from the wilderness if you can't remember anything from the series, if this was your first message and you're like, what in the world is he talking about? If you never read the book of Numbers, go read Matthew chapter 3. The wilderness wisdom is typified for us in the person of Christ who would never trade his worship, who, would ne who, who takes seriously God's word, and who would never test the Father. That's what we learn by watching these people be, uh, uh, again, progressively sanctified over time. And guess what? Remember the image that I invited you into? This isn't just Israel's story. This is a story of every person who has placed faith in Jesus. He is progressively sanctifying each one of us. There is an old man in me. There's an old woman in you. There's a, there's a previous person that needs to be systematically starved, even killed, so that the new person in Christ can live and walk in the promise of God. This person is not some ancient person in the, trapped in the, the annals of the Old Testament. This is a person sitting right here looking at one another in the pews. There are things in us that do not desire the will of God, and we know exactly who they are. We can call them by name. They're in us. And I believe that this book, for the last several weeks that we've been working through, has been teaching and training us how to put the old man to death. We need to walk in the wisdom gained from the wilderness. And so even as we turn from this series, I hope that you will not turn from what you learned in the series. If you need to go back and look up some other messages, by all means, uh, reference your notes, by all means. But know this, once you get done savoring all the nuggets of wisdom previously from the series, know that the, that the, the paradigm that we're focused on is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect one who emerged from the wilderness when his people could not. 
And because he was able to perfectly walk out the wilderness, those who place faith in him are imputed. We are given status. We are given righteousness as though we did work out the wilderness faithfully. Man, in other words, God is just as aggressive in blessing those who will trust him as he is in addressing our sin. So I don't want you to leave here feeling like you got to be perfect. But man, I do want you to leave here feeling a certain sense of becoming more like the Christ. And it's not because you're going to do your hair differently or start wearing sandals or even change your diet. I want you to think that, that God is the one who's bringing about the guarantee, and you and I are going to connect the dots together through incremental acts of obedience. Not just being goody two-shoes, not just moralizing, not just keeping commandments, but Lord, if you move on my heart and say, get out, get up, and read my Bible. If you say, share my faith. If you say, you know, if you say, pray with someone. If you say, apologize to my spouse. I, I, I want to move immediately so that I can get this clearer picture of God's will and see how he's trying to more perfectly form Christ in me. Let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, as we close out our series today, I'm thankful for the new person that you have made every one of us who have placed faith in Christ. Your word says that all things have made, you, made new in you. We are a new creation. And Lord God, I just thank you for the witness of the wilderness from our predecessors into faith, and I pray that all that you intend for us would be opened up and unpacked in our lives in moments where we need it most. That these wouldn't just be messages for us, oh God, but they would be life-changing nuggets of wisdom. I pray for the person here today, oh God, that recognizes that delayed obedience is their specialty. I pray that you would grab hold of that heart and have them to move quickly, even when it doesn't seem practical, even when it seems overly costly. I pray for that person, oh God, who, who may not have a problem with expediting on obedience, but, but they're moving in partial obedience. I pray for that person, oh God, that they would just move forward regardless of how arduous it may seem and just following you completely because they know at the end of that they'll see a more complete picture of your will for them. I pray, oh God, for the person that's struggling with their confidence, who feels like they need to read a book or go to a class or uh, join Toastmasters or, or go through some other kind of uh, gyrations in order to build up their confidence. I pray, oh God, that that person would come to you first. They would come into your master class and recognize that you're the one who distributes and gives confidence. And let that confidence that comes from you, Lord God, cascade out into their own character and their own confidence. But let it start with you. I pray for the personal God who's looking at their life and feels like you're beating up on them, feel like they can't catch a break, I pray that you would refresh their hearts by saying that you're just as aggressive in blessing them as you are in addressing their sin. And that they would hold on to you, oh God, knowing that you have their good in mind, that you are not out to destroy them. You, you want to use their life as an illustration for your most excellent greatness. You want to use their life as a billboard for how grace works. Remind that person, oh God, who's having a difficulty in this season that, that you want their good works to be publicly seen so that people would publicly worship you for your excellent goodness in their lives. Lord God, constrain us by your love to be effective brand managers for the kingdom, that we would be a people who would walk in ways that when the world looks at us, they would learn something accurate. Your narrative would be true, that our lives would match exactly what is discussed in your word. This is our earnest prayer in Jesus' name. Help us now, O oh God, to worship you in light of all we've heard. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship him.